Hello, friends, and welcome to my Heart to Heart podcast. I am your host, Kathy Jo Hart. I am a Christian speaker and author of God's Chosen Helper. Our focus is to discuss the hot topics of the day and how it relates to the Bible and the lessons through the love of Christ. Today, I wanted to talk about evil, who it is, his tactics and strategies, and the battle plan of the enemy. I am going to take a biblical approach of what we need to do to overcome the enemy and the challenges we are facing within the church to fight against it. These past few weeks, we have witnessed the horrors of hatred, all in the name of what? Religion? Land? No, it was the unleashing of demonic evil. I saw a meme a few weeks ago that identified who the real enemy is. It read, You don't need to be Jewish or Israeli to be outraged by pure evil. You only need to be human. Yet we have witnessed thousands around the world celebrating Hamas's savagery of rape, of murder, the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children, and the beheading of infants. There is never justification for this type of demonic evil. And the false reporting on the Gaza hospital bombing just amplified the temperature of hate. Hatred blinds truth. You see, demonic evil is who Satan is. He is the father of all lies and a killer of all mankind from the very beginning. Evil just didn't appear within this century. It has always been here. It was here during the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, Roman Empire, and other empires found in the Bible and in history books. These empires worshipped man-made idols of Baal, Moloch, Marduk, and a multitude of mythological gods. But none of their gods could save them from their own corruption, their own greed, their own immorality, or their own destruction. This is the world of Satan that the Bible has warned us about. But to fight against evil, we have to first learn who Satan is. Satan is known throughout the Bible, and King Solomon spoke of him as the ruler of demons. The story of Satan is told in Ezekiel 28. Satan was anointed as a guardian cherub, but his sinful and prideful nature corrupted him, and he and his followers were kicked out of heaven. Earth is where he was sent. In 1 John, it says the whole world is under the control of the evil one, and Jesus called him the prince of this world. Satan is powerful, but he is not all-powerful. He is very strategic and knowledgeable, but he does not possess all knowledge. 
He is an expert on the fallibility of human nature, and he knows how to enslave the mind of emotions by placing negative thoughts and sinful desires into our minds. You see, Satan wants you to feed on these emotions, and he does this by keeping you stuck in a place where you cannot see a way out. Sin becomes the master of your mind, body, and soul. Satan is also a spiritual being and as such has spiritual children. This is why secular's fixation with the satanic temple is playing with fire, literally. The Bible warns us about these types of satanic influences, and it describes the ongoing conflict between God and human and divine beings who follow the spiritual path of Satan. Although Satan does not have power to control our free will, he can manipulate emotions to influence our free will. His tactics are well known and are on full display in our world culture today. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, to the Garden of Eden, to see his tactics at work. When Eve told the serpent she could not eat from the tree of knowledge, the serpent used his skill of manipulation by twisting the words said by God, which created doubt in Eve's mind. He basically said to Eve, Are you sure God said not to eat from the tree of knowledge? You're not gonna die because God knows if you eat from the tree of knowledge, your eyes will be opened and you will be more like him. Come on, don't you want to see what it tastes like? So what did he do? He first created doubt. He encouraged the desire. He used temptation of the fruit. And he used pride to entice Eve to become more like God. Remember, pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven in the first place. Satan believed he was greater than the Creator, and this is what he used to entice Eve and then Adam. This is the strategy of lies and deception. Now, what is Satan's purpose? It's actually pretty simple. Satan's sole purpose is to separate us from God, because if Satan can do this, he gains your soul, and he is an expert in knowing how to do it. Satan is the enemy within us, and this is how he creates the advantage over us. He uses fear, uncontrolled desires, temptations, anger, unforgiveness, resentment, and hatred, all to seduce humans into sin and falsehoods. And make no mistake, sin will always look attractive, but eventually it becomes destructive. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8-9, to 9, Be self-controlled and alert. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a hungry lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And now that we know who Satan is and his strategies, we need to learn how to defeat him. And here it is. The only way to defeat Satan is through Jesus. We have to learn by Jesus' example when he defeated Satan's temptations found in Matthew chapter 4. The first temptation was during Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. Jesus was very hungry, and Satan told Jesus that if he were truly the Son of God, he could turn stones into loaves of bread. And Jesus replied, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then Satan commanded Jesus to prove he was the Son of God by throwing himself off the highest point of the temple to see if God would save Jesus from the fall. I can just hear Satan tell Jesus, Come on, show me how much God loves his Son. If he loves you, he'll save you. But Jesus replied, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, the final temptation was when Satan showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world and said, All of this I give you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus replied with, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, notice each time Jesus used the word of God to fight against Satan. Do you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't compromise with Satan. But since 1962, our government began banning prayer and the Bible from our public schools and society. The reason behind the Supreme Court decision was to prevent government interference with religion. They cited wars, persecutions, and other destructive events caused when government involved itself in religious affairs. But the declaration against religion became a declaration against God. Even Jesus didn't like religion as evidenced with the Pharisees whose rule over the Jewish people did not honor God's law, but created oppressive religious rules they themselves did not have to follow. In fact, it was the leaders of religion that had Jesus killed. And three generations later, society views God as a political theory And we have a generation unfamiliar with the Bible and the Ten Commandments. And the consequences are being felt in the churches. The churches are doing something Jesus never did. They are compromising 
with the devil. Now, compromise means transforming the word of God to cultural demands instead of the word of God transforming the people. Churches are threatened with, if you want the church to survive, you have to accept these changes. And what do the churches do? They began accepting sin as a fundamental human right. And one of the arguments used by sin-affirming churches is non-acceptance of change drives away the Christ-sinner's need. Huh. I'm pretty sure Jesus would disagree. Jesus commanded us to love one another, but he did not command us to love their sin. We love them, yes, but sin, no. Now, sin has become an identity marker, and many Christians and religious leaders want to be socially accepted, politically affirmed, or publicly applauded for their secular and humanistic approach to woke programs and ideologies. Christians today believe Jesus must work around them instead of them working for Jesus. The acronym of WOKE is Willingly Overlooking Known Evil. Now in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, it says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, another argument for changing the church doctrines is the belief that each generation and each culture is different and that we don't face the same problems as those in ancient biblical times. Well, if you have never studied the Bible to understand the meaning of Scripture, of course you would be led to believe that our world was somehow more intelligent and more sophisticated than any other time in history. But it isn't. We are living our lives on repeat. The culture of today has happened before. Same sin, same enemy. The Bible even warns us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, and it reads, Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. And as our society grows away from church and learning about the word of God, we now have over 45,000 Christian denominations around the world, each creating their own rules and teachings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul faced the same problems with his newly established churches. He wrote in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind 
and thought. And Paul continued in verse 13 and asked them, is Christ divided? The answer is still the same today as it was when Paul asked this question. And the answer is, no, Christ is not divided. This means in order to fight against the enemy, it requires unity in Christ. And in Psalm chapter 21, verse 30, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. So we know that unity in Christ is required to fight against the enemy. So what does that look like? Well, one, we have to get the churches back on track and to walk away from the belief that God's word can or should be compromised. It is through silence and fear that churches are no longer teaching, preaching, and ministering healing and deliverance in the name of Jesus Christ. Churches are divided on a political and spiritual level. As it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 to 26, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, money means whatever is valued more than the Lord. Which one will the church serve? Christ or money? Now let's go to Romans chapter 12 to see how Paul addresses these same issues. And it says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is telling us to be aware of trying to change according to culture. He is reminding us that Satan gains access to the mind through the mindset of emotions. So we have to keep renewing our mind in Christ. And Paul continues, Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. 
Now, Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts available to every man, woman, and child who is baptized in the Holy Spirit. God created us to have different talents, different strengths, and different gifts. But many Christian denominations try to limit the use of these gifts to men only. Now, can you imagine reducing spiritual gifting by two-thirds? Especially when we are to use these God-given gifts to serve Christ. And together, we would be at our strongest. Each person is to serve a purpose that differs from the other. It is our differences that provide us with the ultimate potential to make each other great. And we need all of the spiritual gifts to fight against the enemy. Paul continues with, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Now let me repeat that. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now the next verse is really important. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the temptation of fighting evil with evil and getting even with the enemy goes back to Babylonian times. And King David grappled with these same emotions in Psalm 137. Babylonians used the same savagery as Hamas did against the innocent men, women, and children. They, too, bashed the heads of children against the rocks in order to destroy Jerusalem. There were those who cheered the murderous rampage, just like thousands are cheering today. In Psalm 137, it was King David's conversation with God in prayer. His emotions were very strong and very raw, just like our emotions are today. 
How could something so evil go unpunished? In verse 7, King David tells God to destroy it, destroy it down to its foundation. He was asking God to end the lifelines of those who did such evil things so they would have no more descendants. This was King David's righteous anger over evil. There was no forgiveness in his heart. Now, doesn't this sound familiar? But what did God do? He listened to David's prayer. David longed for God's revenge, just like many are yearning for today. And as God promised in Romans chapter 12, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And you know what? God did just that in Jeremiah chapter 51 with his judgment on Babylon. And it reads in verse 6, For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. And in verse 9, We tried to heal Babylon, but she could not be healed. You know, this is probably the first time I could relate to Psalm 137. I had similar conversations with God and struggled with my own heart. But then I realized the reason we must turn our emotions over to God is because Jesus warned us in Matthew 6 that an unforgiving heart will destroy us in the end. In verse 15, if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. And we do see King David's heart in the remaining Psalms of his love, his thankfulness, and praise for God. We are also instructed to put on the armor of God found in Ephesians chapter 6 with the belt of truth, not your truth, but God's truth. The breastplate of righteousness, our feet fitted, which is standing firm on the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and then there is the one offensive weapon God gives us, which is the sword of the Spirit. This is what Jesus used when he defeated Satan's power, which is the word of God. Although I believe we all have an obligation to defend and protect ourselves and our family, God has made it very clear we are not to repay evil with evil, but in order to eliminate evil, which we must do, it requires unity in Christ. Unity in Christ requires love, hope, patience, studying the word of God, and prayer, powerful prayer. We know who the enemy is. We know how he uses lies and deception as a strategy for his battle plan. We know his tactics, and we know how 
to defeat him. And here is one other thing about Satan. He isn't clever. When you read the Bible, you'll see he uses the same sinful tactics over and over again. Those who don't know God, those who don't study God's word, will be easily enticed through their own standard of wisdom and unprotected hearts. Satan is clever only to those who are separated from God. And as we end this podcast, I would like to emphasize that prayer was the most important part of Jesus's everyday life. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, Jesus taught them a prayer we still say today. And here is a tip which you may not know. We are to recite this prayer every day just like Jesus did. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.